Today we are going to uh, stick in one part of the Proverbs. I told you we're going to start hopscotching, but I actually decided against that today. We're going to do one more. Uh, we're going to stick just in Proverbs 18. And what we've done in the first couple of sermons of this series, now that's a, a few weeks ago, is talk about wisdom and really define it. What does it mean? What are the benefits of wisdom? And how do we get it? Uh, so I encourage you, if you missed those sermons or if you need a, a recap, we have lots of tools to do that. Just go to our website and click on the Sermons tab, and you'll see podcasts, you'll see videos, whatever it is. Uh, they're there, uh, ready to be shared or reviewed. Uh, you can do that. But today, as I referenced in the prayer, we're going to look at the opposite of wisdom. And I think this is really important uh, as people of God to know the warning signs when you're walking down the wrong path. And at times you can read a book like this, Proverbs, and uh, wonder how this ancient wisdom from 4,000 years ago could possibly apply to us today. Because we're people that are, are used to change, especially now. Uh, when you consider the immense amount of change that we've gone through, even the last hundred years. Uh, less than a hundred years ago, uh, our society was vastly different. There was there's no frozen food section in the grocery store. There's, there's no such thing as microwaves. We didn't have credit cards or, or photocopiers. We didn't even have ballpoint pens 100 years ago. They're still wondering if the moon was made of cheese 100 years ago. And kids, there wasn't smartphones or internet 100 years ago. So we've advanced so far, even in the context of a century, and you'd think that would make us wiser people, making better decisions. But the reality is that through the thousands of years of human existence, some things never change. And what we see is that the statutes and the wisdom of God's word applies to us just as much today as it did when Solomon wrote these things. And so a fool roughly looks the same as it did when he wrote these words. A wise person roughly looks the same. And we have so many promises and warnings we can glean from this. So today we're going to look at the blueprint of a fool, really the characteristics or the attitude of a fool, their activities, the kinds of things they do, and most importantly, the antidote or the cure for a fool. So if you're already open, uh, we're going to read these words together, Proverbs 18, verses 1 through 10. An unfriendly person pursues selfish ends and against all sound judgment starts quarrels. Fools find no pleasure in understanding but delight in airing their own opinions. When wickedness comes, so does contempt, and with shame comes reproach. The words of the mouth are deep waters, but the fountain of wisdom is a rushing stream. It is not good to be partial to the wicked and so deprive the innocent of justice. The lips of fools bring them strife, and their mouths invite a beating. The mouths of fools are their undoing, and their lips are a snare to their very lives. The words of gossip are like choice morsels that go down to the inmost parts. One who is slack in his work is a brother to one who destroys. 
The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. So we just read a lot that at the surface might seem it's kind of disconnected uh, from one another. But I see here that King Solomon really follows kind of a flow of what it means to be a fool and most importantly what it means to be wise. And the first three verses really uh, central around this topic of the attitude of a fool. And look at verse 1 again, that an unfriendly person pursues selfish ends and against all sound judgment starts quarrels. Now, I like the ESV uh, translation of this, is that a fool is someone who isolates himself and seeks their own desires. So one of the uh, definitions here we see of a fool is that they're isolated, they're self-centered, and they're argumentative in nature, or they're rebellious in nature. And so when we say isolated, we're not talking about being introverted, okay? Introversion is not a sin, at least I hope not, because I'm in deep trouble if that's the case. But this is someone who avoids community altogether because they don't want to receive accountability. They don't want to receive alternative perspectives. They're really set in their ways, and they become this lone ranger that detaches themselves from relationships, especially relationships that would challenge them. So that's what it means here to be an unfriendly person. And they would also then pursue selfish ends. What this means is that they are absorbed with themselves, self-centered, narcissist, kind of my way or the highway type of person. And they have no pleasure in seeing other people happy. But all that matters is themselves. And in part B of that verse is that against all sound judgment, they start quarrels. And this is somebody who does not respond well to authority. They don't respond well to alternative point of views. But they're always one that has a bone to pick. Right? They're always starting fights with people around them. And if you've heard the uh, saying, there's no point in trying to reason with a fool, this is exactly that kind of idea. Because if you try to correct them or try to even gently guide them, it never goes well. And they're going to be one who's very rebellious, quick-tempered, and have no emotional control. Everything turns into a fight with a fool. We go on and, and talk about this attitude of a fool with verse 2, that they find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. Now, this really talks about someone with a small mouth, or small mind and a big mouth, right? Or another way of saying it is, is that a fool is a know-it-all with the closed ears and an open mouth. And I've heard it said, if you want to tell the difference between a wise person and a fool, just wait to see who opens their mouth first and listen. Because they have no, uh, no other path but to gush their own folly, the Proverbs say. They love to talk and air their own opinions. And this really is the point of a prideful heart. That they have all of the answers and none of the questions. So when they find no pleasure in understanding, they've really convinced themselves that 
Everything they believe is what everyone else ought to believe. And there's no bargaining or reasoning with that. And they find no pleasure in understanding the ways of God, is what that first part means, but rather they delight in themselves and their own opinion. So this could mean that they are reclusive of understanding or simply they're rebellious of understanding. And if they hear something, they just immediately dismiss it and delight in their own thoughts. Now, God gave us two ears and one mouth by design because that should be the order in which we approach things. And James reinforces that idea that we should be quick to listen and slow to speak. But the fool is one who speaks first and never listens. And the last part of this, in the attitude of the fool, verse 3, is that they uh, are, are going to come into wickedness. And I, I just want to touch on this word wickedness here, that wickedness and sinfulness are, are synonymous in the Proverbs. They mean the same thing. That when you're in a fool, when you're a fool, you're marching toward a life of sinfulness. Because you're rejecting everything God says. You don't care about understanding or discernment or what's right and what's wrong. But you revel in what's wrong, and you're one that loves sin. And so with sin comes three companions that we see here. Contempt, shame, and reproach. Okay, we'll talk about those in a second. But the takeaway is that a fool really becomes a glutton for punishment. And they're self-destructive in their behavior. And those three words, contempt, that can also mean like a scorning. Or, or thinking poorly of someone else. Shame is like this dishonor that really talks about their reputation. And reproach is kind of this disgraceful attitude, or people have a lot of questions about this, this kind of person. And what's amazing about this verse is the way the language is written, it can be actually applied in two different ways. So contempt, shame, and reproach could be from others and how they think of the fool, or from the fool and how they think of others. So when you become self-destructive and make these poor decisions, people will look at you poorly. Right? And that's one of the consequences of sin. But amazingly, the fool who's making these bad decisions will now start blaming everyone else around them. And it's this idea that even though from the outside you can see them making all of these self-destructive decisions where they, they lose friends, they lose jobs, they lose homes, or whatever it might be, they're the one who is always the victim in their minds. And everything is always everyone else's fault. And it becomes this position of which they will never learn if they can't accept responsibility and understand that there's consequences for their decisions. The fool will always blame others for their own decisions. This is really, uh, there's a lot more said about the fool in the Proverbs, but when you look at the attitude, this is really pretty comprehensive what you see. They don't listen. They're quick to talk. They remove themselves from any challenging situation. And then when they make these bad decisions, even against sound judgment, they blame everyone else. And the takeaway for us is that if you want to be wise, surround yourself with wise people. Build relationships with them. Listen. Ask questions. Seek understanding. And also recognize your own limitations that you don't have it all figured out, and you will always have more to learn. And if you can do that, it doesn't necessarily guarantee an easy life, because hard things can still happen, even with great decisions, 
but it does significantly limit your ability to self-inflict harm and self-destruct. So that's the attitude of a fool that we see here. Verses 4 through 9 really talk about the activity of a fool. What do they do? And verses 4 through 5 really sets it up a lot. It's the words of the mouth are deep waters, but the fountain of wisdom is a rushing stream. It's not good to be partial to the wicked and so deprive the innocent of justice. We're talking a lot here about words. And again, the activity of a fool is typically around what they say. And you can tell a lot about a person with the kind of words that they choose. Words matter. Words matter greatly to us, but words matter even more to God. You know, when you go to the doctor for your annual physical, you ever wonder why they have you stick out your tongue? And, and they, they check the tongue, and you go, oh, and... The tongue actually tells you a lot about your physical health. And just a quick examination by the doctor can point to significant problems elsewhere in your body. And the same is true in the spiritual life. If you examine your tongue, it actually says a lot about where you are and your spiritual health. And we see here kind of a compare and contrast the words of the mouth. And what this means is the words of the human mouth. Okay, so this is a person apart from God are like deep waters, but the fountain of wisdom, this means the mouth of God, is like a rushing stream. You put this in the context of the ancients, that they didn't have running water, they had to go gather water. And if you're thirsty, a a big deep pool might look inviting to you. And it looks like there's this abundant supply, but in that could be hidden dangers. It could be stale and bitter, it could be full of disease. And so when you drink from it, it could harm you greatly. But the words of God, the fountain of wisdom, is like a rushing stream that's safe and refreshing and life-giving. So the reality is that a fool does not know the difference. They can't discern the difference between helpful and harmful words. Or maybe they do and they just don't care. But they just talk and talk. And they create a lot of damage and destruction around them. Now, Ephesians 4 is this chapter that largely is speaking about the body of Christ and how we're to interact with one another. And and Paul kind of wraps up that section with verse 29, talking about our words. And he says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Let your words be something that are refreshing and life-giving to others. And if they're not, then don't speak them. There's a warning here in verse 5 of the wise to not participate in negative talk. Don't be partial to the wicked in the ways they speak, because then you perpetuate the problem. You become a part of the problem if you're listening and sharing what you're hearing. And we're going to talk about that more in verse 8. But a fool doesn't know the difference between helpful and harmful words. We'll move on, verses 6 and 7, that the fools, the lips of fools, bring them strife, and their mouths invite a beating. The mouths of fools are their undoing, and their lips are a snare to their very lives. So not only do their words have destructive power to those around them, it's another one of those self-destructive things, that they just keep talking and eventually talk themselves into trouble. 
So our point there is that a fool is self-destructive with their choice of words. In verse 6, I like the way the ESV does this one too, is that their fools, a fool's lips walk into a fight. It's their lips that bring them into fights. And the message paraphrase is kind of entertaining. The words of a fool starts fights, <clears throat> so do them a favor and gag them. The reality is that fools are often very antagonistic and combative with their words. And they use them as weapons and daggers. And they just can't help but to keep talking. They don't know when to stop speaking, even when it damages themselves. And if you want to see one of the most depraved areas of mankind, just go to a comment section on a YouTube video or an online news article where people can speak freely. And there's a lot of things in there that's just dagger after dagger of people being kind of keyboard ninjas, trying to attack the people around them. But in reality, it just makes them look dumb. And that's what words do here when we see verse 7. We see this word uh, picture of, of setting up a snare, that they're trying to trap the people around them or attack the people around them. But in reality, they're walking into their own trap. They forget that they've dug this pit for someone else, and they walk straight into it. And it might be a lie meant to attack another person, but lies always come back on the liar, eventually. People understand, they may believe for a while, but eventually they'll be caught in it, and they'll be punished for that. Maybe they won't be trusted anymore, or there's a, a reputation that's damaged, or they lose their job or their friendship. But in any way that you try to use your words to attack someone else, eventually they're going to come back and affect the fool. This is a picture of a person reaping what they sow. And, and the book of Galatians talks about this very concept, Galatians 6, that a man reaps what he sows, and whoever sows to please their flesh or to please themselves will from the flesh reap destruction. But whoever sows to please the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So how you speak has a great consequence, either positive or negative, on your very life. And wise people understand that even a lifetime of building relationships and reputation can be undone in a few simple words. Wisdom tells you that you don't have to apologize for the things you don't say. And so choose your words wisely. Now, verse 8 hits a topic that we're all familiar with. Gossip. And this is one of many mentions of gossip in the Proverbs. But I want to make one thing clear. Gossip is not something that's just kind of little or annoying or entertaining. Gossip is a sin. Gossip is a sin. And God hates sin. So that means God hates gossip. And what makes this sin different from a lot of other sins is it's not one that just affects the sinner. It's designed to affect those around the sinner. And so it really becomes like a disease for a community. Gossip is a disease. Now, everyone here has the wisdom that if you're sick, it's not wise to cough or sneeze on someone else. In fact, it's just rude. All right, you learn when you're three years old to cover up your mouth. 
But when you gossip, it's like coughing and sneezing this destructive sin on all those around you. And it gets them sick as well. So the words here, that gossip, are like choice morsels. That's not speaking positively of gossip. It just shows how much people love it. And it goes down to the inmost parts. It affects who they are. It tarnishes their heart. And this is a universal issue, right? Inside the church, outside the church. Everyone deals with this, and it is destructive. So the the fool is one who does not understand or care how their words may affect others. But what's interesting about this specific verse is it's not really speaking to the gossiper. It's speaking to the listener, to the participators or the perpetuators of gossip. Gossiper is also known as a whisperer. There are synonymous words in the Proverbs. Gossiper, whisperer. It's the kind of person, you know, that's always kind of, hey, did you hear about that? You know, they're always off to the side. It's telling us to avoid those kinds of people. All right? So if you seek out gossip, you become part of the problem. And I always try to read a handful of commentaries each week I prepare for a sermon. And, and I always make sure to take one from someone who is or has been a pastor, who reads these things and knows how it kind of affects the spiritual community, because that, that helps me a lot in, in gaining wisdom in these things. And Ray Ortland is one of the uh, commentators I read last week, and, and through these verses, each thing was kind of short. And then when he got to verse 8, it was like, pfft, like so, and he's a pastor of many years at a church. He's like, okay, so he's had some experience in this with his church, for sure. And I'm going to read a pretty long block quote from him. So he says this on this verse. Let's admit it. We love negative information about others. We love controversy. And it's a delicacy to the corrupt parts of our flesh. And we gulp it down with relish and lick our lips. But gossip is not a food that satisfies Rather, a disease that leaves us sicker than we were before. And as God's people, we must not participate in such a great sin. With every unkind word that goes unconfronted in the body, a reputation dies. And by participating, we perpetuate this disastrous sin. Do you speak up when others are put down? Or do you stand and listen in sinful silence. Because to spread gossip and to listen to gossip are one sin all in the same. Doesn't that kind of convict you? If you're not convicted, you should be convicted. Because for whatever reason, we always let gossip be this little innocent thing. But it is dangerous and destructive. Words matter. And you have a right to challenge any other Christian in what they say. So I want to give you that power right now, that if you hear something that you don't know if it's true, challenge it. Ask them. Do you know if that's true? Is it productive for you to be saying this? Is this uplifting someone else or tearing them down? And then walk away if they're unwilling to stop. The biblical idea is that if someone has an issue with another person, they are to go to that person. There's one thing to have an issue with someone, 
and talk to them. That's biblical. It's another to have an issue with someone and talk about them. That is evil and a sin. We speak about words a lot in the Proverbs, or Solomon does, and we're going to talk about words more this summer. But words become the distinguishing mark of a wise person and a fool. We have to be very careful not only of how we speak, but how we listen. And the last point on this goes off of words and really goes about our work ethic. I'm going to hit this very lightly because we're going to come back to this later in the summer. That a fool is one who is slack in his work and a brother to one who destroys. What this tells us is that a fool is a slacker. They have no desire to be productive in their life, and they're one that always does just enough to get by. In many parts of the scriptures, they also call it a sluggard. A fool is the same as a sluggard, lazy person. And they're brothers to him who destroys. So not only do they sell themselves short, but they also sell everyone else short. They become the same with one who is destructive. And cutting corners often uh, just puts the burden on those around you, coworkers, friends, families. If you didn't do the work, someone else is going to have to do it. But it's also the same attitude of, yeah, I'm a mechanic, and yeah, I forgot to torque down those lug nuts, and they might be loose, but who is it going to affect, right? It's good enough. It can be very dangerous to those around you when you are entrusted and enabled with something. And the same is true in the body. If God has equipped you and called you to some specific service in the body, and you go, eh, someone else can do it, you're not affecting yourself. You're affecting the whole body. Our work ethic is part of our testimony. And the wise people understand that. If you sell yourself short, you're also selling the church short as a Christian. I talked a lot about the negative today. I like to finish on the positive note. The reality is that there's a cure for the fool. There's an antidote to this sickness. And it really has to do with our humility before God. The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The fool can only be cured through humility, a humble heart before our very God, our holy God. Let's talk about that that first part, the name of the Lord. And this isn't talking about Yahweh. It's not talking about Jesus or God the Father, God the Son. The name meant the character of God, the very being of God. Knowing God is our fortified tower. It is our strength. And running to who we know as God is what saves us. And this is the total opposite of all we've been reading today. A fool is one who doesn't care what God says. He doesn't care what God thinks, but rather delights in their own opinions and rejects all kinds of discipline or teaching and double downs on their own foolishness. But a wise person is the one who says, I don't know. I don't know, but God does. And in him, I will find my security. As we know God through wisdom, then we desire to be like God in our character, in our attitudes. And that becomes our source of strength and security. It's humility 
before God and a lack of pride in yourself that is the cure for the fool. Now, I want to touch on one really important clarification today. So all of you out there who are saying, I've done some of those things. And if we're really honest, we'd probably say, I've done some of those things today. There's a big difference between being a fool and acting like a fool. There's a big difference between being a fool and exhibiting foolish behavior. So if you're the one that's kind of squirming in your seat going, I really hope I'm not a fool, you're in a good spot. Okay? Because we all do foolish things. But recognizing them as an issue and desiring to be different is what makes you wise. It's running to the character of God and using that as a template of who you want to be. That the name of the Lord is your fortified tower. Pride is the mark of the fool because they double down on what they know is wrong. And they don't care the example and the character of God. And we're told that the exalted, the humble, or the exalted, the proud, will be humbled. But the humbled will be exalted as the way towards wisdom and the cure for foolishness. To know that all your worth comes through Christ and what he has done, the name of the Lord, and furthermore, what he can do through you. That's a daily endeavor and a daily attitude for the wise person. That sets us up wonderfully for communion today as we do this to close the service, is remembering what God has done and reveling in that above all other things, that that becomes your source of security in life. Now, just a, a bit about communion before we get into it. If you're new here today, this is something we do monthly because Jesus told us to do it regularly. It's something that's been commanded of the church because we need these reminders. We, meet, we need to be reminded to remember because we get caught up in all sorts of things in life. This is a time dedicated to remember all that Jesus has done for you and the most important sacrifice. This is all some, something that we share with all believers in, in, in Christ, all of those who profess to be Christians. There's no membership requirements. There's no class that's needed. So today, if you are one, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're welcome to participate with us. And the last part is that the bread and the cup, we believe, are symbolic of the body and the blood of Christ. They're tools to help us remember all that Jesus has done. But today I want to focus on that topic of humility when we set up communion. Humility is the way towards wisdom. But there is no greater humility exemplified than that of Jesus Christ. Now, he had every right to be proud in who he was. He had every right to tell us like it is, to turn his back on us and say, you know, I've got this all figured out and you are all just slowing me down and creating problems for me. He had every right to completely sever relationships with us and live with himself. But that's not what he did because that's not what wisdom does. He humbled himself to a point that it should be an example for all of us. One of my favorite 
portions of Scripture. I'm going to read for you in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. That in your relationships with one another have the same mindset or the same attitude as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the extent of his wisdom and love and humility for us, is that he humbled himself to death as a service for us who did not deserve it. It's a humbling experience that leads us to reflect on who God is and who we are. And that's what we do now is just take a moment in silence to examine our own hearts, to remember those two things, who God is, what he did for you, and who we are, how much we need him. So take that moment just between you and God. It's a time just to come clean before him. Maybe you're convicted of some things today. Maybe you've acted in foolish ways, and you need to ask for forgiveness for that. Bring that to God now. Maybe you have a hard time in relationships with others. Ask for forgiveness and and pray ways that you can restore those things. Maybe you just feel far from God because you've been thinking you can do this all your own. This is the time to squash the pride of your heart and to come before him in humility and just simply say, God, I need you. However we want to take this time, we're going to take a quick moment in silence as we examine our hearts before the Lord. God, in this time, as we reflect on those things, who you are and who we are, uh, God, it leads us all, hopefully, to the same conclusion. Uh, God, that your love is so deep and amazing that you did what it did for, for us, that we don't deserve this. This time of communion speaks ultimately of who you are and nothing of who we are, that you are deserving of all the praise and the glory and the honor You humbled yourself so low, Jesus, to the point of dying on that cross for us, that you would be the way that our sins could be forgiven, that we could be made new once again. But I I pray for anyone here this morning that's maybe coming to this realization right now, potentially for the first time, that they've been living their lives in pride and that they've been doing it in a way in which they say, I don't need you but maybe that's starting to change, that through your spirit you are convicting of them of this attitude and, and they're realizing now that they need you. I, I pray for them, that they would just now offer their very selves to you, that they would know that they have fallen short in sin, that you have paid the price for that sin and that they can trust in you as Lord from here on out, that they take all their cues from you and trust you above all things that they believe your sacrifice was sufficient for them. God, when our hearts come to that place of understanding, we know that means we become a new creation in you. We become a part of your great big family and have the eternal life with you. That's the only way to do it. 
But God, for anyone now, if, if they're praying those things right now for the first time, or if they've done it many years, I just pray you would strengthen us in this time, that this, this communion, this reflection time would be something that encourages us and, and spurs us on uh, to knowing you more and doing the good deeds that you've prepared in advance for us to do, that, that we do this all as a way of saying thank you for what you've done for us, because all that was required for salvation is what you did on the cross, and that's what we remember now. So God, I just pray you would, you would bless this time. You'd speak to our hearts and your Holy Spirit would be here and active working in each and every one of us. We pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.